The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Well, good morning. Um, Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 22-year breast cancer survivor, survivor, excuse me. I'm a certified life coach and the author of my upcoming book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. And I'm Becky Olson. I'm a three-time 20-year breast cancer survivor. I'm a professional speaker and the author of The Hat That Saved My Life. And today, you know, we're also the co-founders of Breast Friends, and today we have an incredibly special guest. We have Lily Shockney, and you know, I was looking at Lily's pedigree, and honest to goodness, it's about two pages long. This woman has done so many things, won so many awards, I can't even read them all. So, um, But the, the bottom line is she's a registered nurse, she's a two-time cancer survivor, and she's the administrative director of Johns Hopkins Breast Cancer Center since 1997. She's also a professional speaker, and in fact, Lily, I don't know if you know this, but you and I have shared some of the same stages from time to time. So welcome, Lily, and, and thanks for being a guest on our show today. Thank you so much. So we'd love to have you tell us a little bit about your story. The first time I met you, I actually heard you share your story, and it was funny. You had some great moments in there, and we would just love to hear you um, kind of give the audience a little bit of that background about your cancer journey. Do you mind doing that? Sure. Oh, absolutely. So I was diagnosed in my late 30s um, mm-hmm. with uh, invasive ductal breast cancer. It was found kind of accidentally uh, because I wasn't yet due to begin screening mammograms since I was under 40. But I had a lump in my right breast that prompted me to see my gynecologist. And he said, well, let's go ahead and get a mammogram uh, done and see what this is. And that lump ended up being um, a cyst. But he said, since you're between the age of 35 and 40, let's also get a mammogram of your other breast uh, so that so you will already have a baseline mammogram. And it was the other breast where I felt nothing that the cancer actually was. So I, I truly do believe that a... Oh my. Uh, a mammogram did did save my life. I did oh. have what's called a multicentric disease. Multiple tumors in the breast kind of looked like a little solar system in there, which only happens to 5% of women, but if you're in the 5%, then it's 100% for you. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> so I underwent a, um, a mastectomy. It was a modified radical, uh, also having an axillary node dissection because this was 24 years ago. It predated having... Uh, sentinel load biopsy, which is now available today. And um, for other medical reasons, I wasn't a candidate for reconstruction um, at that time. So I 
uh, was wearing a breast prosthesis that I named, and her name was Betty Boob. And uh, at the <laughs> age remember of that. 40, yes, at the age of 40, I ended up diagnosing my other breast, same situation, huh? multicentric disease, and I ended up getting Bobby Sue to have be my Gucci <laughs> twins. I did have several sets of them, which meant I could be whatever size I wanted to be. Uh, on any given day. And that is the silver lining, years, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Ten years after that second mastectomy, I finally became medically cleared to be able to do breast reconstruction, and I had a deep flap, D-I-E-P, deep mm-hmm. uh, inferior epigastric perforator uh, flap, taking my tummy fat but no muscle, actually cutting it free from my body and transplanting it up to my chest. So now I have what my husband calls the girls, <laughs> and um, we've, we've been doing just fine uh, with them. I actually gave my breast prosthesis to an African-American woman that I was uh, clinically uh, treating at the time with her uh, diagnosis of breast cancer. She had breast cancer in both breasts, and um, so she was very happy because they were uh, what I would consider probably the Mercedes-Benz of prostheses. They were about $600 a piece, oh, and the grants that we had her covered for for her treatment would only have provided a prosthesis that would uh, only be about $50. So mm. she thought it was pretty nifty that she had uh, she had the Cadillac versions um, on her <laughs> chest. And I told her that she was welcome to change their names if she wished to. <laughs> so, Lily, when, when did you say you had the deep flap? How long I had ago? the deep flap, um, let's see, it is now 13 years ago. Wow, you must and have I been would, one of the first because it I hasn't been around that long. Yeah. Well, actually, um, at, at Johns Hopkins, we've been doing them since 1998. Really? Uh, so, so it wasn't new for for us or for me, because I had taken care of by the time I had mine done. I had taken care of several thousand women who had had deep flaps done um, at our facility. Yeah, you know, it's a really great procedure. I had mine done. I had a deep flap done here in Oregon about, I guess, four and a half years ago. And they had just kind of brought it to Oregon. There was just really one doctor team mm-hmm. doing it. And now there's probably four or five doing them, I'm, I'm guessing. But, you know, I, I knew the procedure existed, but I really didn't want to travel to go do it. So when sure. it when launched it here, I actually had my implants removed and I had the deep flap done. And it was, I mean, it's a really complicated name. I, I know you said what it was, but <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah. But it's, so you, it's need a really, a, you need a plastic surgeon who knows how to do microvascular surgery yeah, because exactly. these tiny perforators are just the, uh, the size of pencil lead. They're only one to two millimeters, and they have to stitch around them to Isn't reconnect them and, and provide that blood supply. It's an incredible, amazing procedure. Yeah, talking about Cadillac of the procedures, this is probably it, I would imagine. But it's, uh, you know, what's nice about them, and you, you and I have, you know, we've, well, Sharon, Sharon's had implants. I've had implants. Did you ever have them? I mean, I know you did the the prosthetics, but did you ever do implants too? No, I I, uh, I wasn't a candidate to to do reconstruction because of general anesthesia problems. Oh, okay. So no one likes putting me to sleep. So yeah. a new anesthetic agent became available, and I was tested with it, and it worked out to um to to be a winner uh, for mm-hmm. me. There's also a, a couple other reconstructions just to let the audience know that are also done uh, as a microvascular procedure. Uh, buttocks fat um, can be uh, taken and, and used to rebuild breasts, and also inner thigh fat. 
Um, oh, I should have done that. Say, <laughs> yeah, see, a lot, a lot of women say, oh, dang, I wish I'd known about that. Uh, it does have to well, be your own fat. I get mm-hmm. phone calls and emails from women saying, my neighbor's got breast cancer. She's very thin. I would like to donate my inner thighs, my buttocks, and my abdomen to her. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, okay. it needs to be the same DNA. Now, we have done this with identical twins, oh, where wow. one was heavier uh-huh. than the other and okay. taken her tiny fat and tiny fat and gave it to her identical twin who had breast cancer. So, um, But it, it does need to be the same genetic uh, characteristics. <laughs> so I did, I did the tummy version. So now if I decide I want to make them bigger, I can just go back in and say, hey, take some from these other places and we're good to go, right? <laughs> Precisely. Yes. Put it to a good use, I say. So, wow. Lily, is that what they refer to as a fat transfer or is that something completely? Because I've heard a lot about That's fat transfers. That's actually something different. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, the fat transfer is um, actually liposuctioning fat from wherever that you may have it. And then having it injected um, up in the breast area to fill in any areas that didn't uh, get completely filled in uh, cosmetically to look to look right to look like the real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is fat injections of your own fat that can be uh, can be placed elsewhere. And for women that are, um, let's say, they're a, a very petite woman whose a bra size is going to be an A or triple A uh, cup, sometimes they just do that fat grafting, just having. Um, a little bit of fat tissue uh, transferred uh, up and, and injected in them, and that works quite well. Oh, well that's good. a great idea. Yeah, good. so at least you're not concave. You have a little something-something. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lily, I have to share something with you. You were my inspiration to become a speaker. And, you know, I, ha- I had always wanted to be a speaker, and when Sharon and I both worked in corporate America, I kind of had this vision that my speaking um, path would be like in sales training or, you know, that area. And, I, you know, no matter what, I couldn't get doors to really open that way. And then you came to Portland and you spoke at an event called Cancer World with Wendy yes. Dixon. She was the founder of Cancer World. I'm not sure what that organization didn't quite, you know, grab hold, but you came and you spoke at that. And I don't remember what year it was, but it had to be around maybe 2001 or two perhaps? Do you remember? Uh, I think, I'm going to say maybe four years ago, maybe five, I'm not quite Oh, no, sure. this I, was way, I, this is way back. This is, oh, this is oh, way back because we had just started, there. yeah, we just started Breast yeah. Friends and I did my first uh, professional speaking gig in 2003. But when I heard so, you get up and share so your probably story. Probably 2001 or 2002. I bet you I just yeah. had my reconstruction done actually. Yeah, you, you, I think mm-hmm. it was all still kind of new, and you told those funny stories about losing hair, and <laughs> it was, it was funny. Like land, your, your, I think your breast or your wig or something landed in somebody's luncheon plate. It was, uh, it was I've fun. I've had all kinds of interesting things happen. <laughs> oh yes. Um, <laughs> when I heard you tell that story, yeah. When uh-huh. I heard you tell that story, I thought to myself, I said, you know what? I've got a story too, and I had no <laughs> idea I could use my story. And make that my speaking topic. So you yeah. inspired me. I've been speaking since 2003. And every now and then we run across each other on the same stage. And it's, um, it's you've just been a real inspiration. So I just wanted to thank you for the work well, that thank you do. Yeah, you're really funny. So I know we have some talking points you wanted to get to. So we've been kind of shooting the breeze here a little bit and getting to know yeah. you a little bit. Sharon, I think you've got some questions that you wanted well, to ask. I, I want 
wanted to know um, when when you talk about being the administrative director at John Hopkins, um, what what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that I'm uh, operationally responsible for the breath center, uh, measuring quality of care, making sure that we are being very uh, patient centric. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that, is uh, when someone's diagnosed with breast cancer, really any kind of cancer, I, um, <clears throat> I want to know what their life goals are before we begin uh, determining any type of treatment plan. Now, commonly, a breast cancer patient will say, my goals don't matter anymore, please just save my life, I have a 10-year-old to raise. And I'll say, mm-hmm. oh, you just told me one of your most significant life goals, you have a 10-year-old to raise. Um, Exactly. We want to make sure, yeah, we wow. want to make sure that we are incorporating those life goals into the treatment planning process. I don't want a breast cancer patient to sacrifice any more of herself than is absolutely necessary to this mm. disease. Now, oftentimes physicians may remember to ask a young woman, are you planning to have a baby or expand your family in the future? And if she says yes, then he'll recommend a referral to uh, for fertility preservation. But beyond that, physicians usually are not thinking about any other goals. So I had a patient a couple years ago who was a uh, uh, teller at a local bank in downtown. And um, when I was talking to her about tell me your tell me your goals, and she said, "Well, actually, I'm studying to be a concert pianist, but no one knows that other than my immediate family." And you can imagine, I was like, holy schmoly. So I told her I was going to contact uh, her medical oncologist because I knew we were planning to give her chemotherapy agents that would cause peripheral neuropathy, numbness, tingling, and pain in her fingers, which would more than likely result in her sacrificing her greatest joy, which was to become a concert pianist. Uh, It would have been awful if on the back end of all of this, uh, after her treatment was done without that intervention, if she would have said, I'm still having trouble with my fingers, when will this go away? Mm-hmm. Uh, only to be told, gee, we didn't know you were studying to be a concert pianist. So <clears throat> I, I feel very philosophically strong about that, that we should only give this disease the time it needs to get rid of it and don't let it take away any more of us or our time, not our family time, social time personal time or, or even work time. And if we can have our life goals stay on track, I think that's really good. And then I want patients to expand those life goals um, afterwards. They may want to do some volunteer time perhaps uh, with us or with a, another cancer organization. Um, I, I did have a patient recently who, uh, who told me that she had identified a new life goal that she was very excited about. And I said, oh, well, share that with me. And she said, I'm going to get a husbandectomy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that one before. I love that. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, is that a result of you having treatment? And she said, yes. She said, I'm in touch with my mortality, and I've sized up my situation, and I'm not going to stay with this guy. So, you know, that's, um, um and I, I, yeah, so sometimes we make uh, really very significant decisions uh, when, yes. when it comes to uh, setting new life goals. I also have a team of nurse navigators in the breast center. Um, all of them, but one actually are breast cancer survivors themselves, and um, they provide one-on-one support to newly diagnosed patients. 
providing education, psychosocial support, and also identifying any barriers that the patient may have that would impede her getting her treatment, all of her treatment and her treatment efficiently. The most common barriers today in the United States for all cancer patients is transportation, Mm. and the other are now financial barriers. Uh, Patients are dealing with a bigger copay, um, a bigger deductible, Mm -hmm. and um, uh, drugs are more expensive than they've ever been, unfortunately. And we also um, are seeing that uh, patients are are literally needing to take out loans and such in order to to pay off their medical bills. Um, Whatever that we can do to provide them resources, and there really are quite a few wonderful national as well as regional local advocacy organizations that will um, provide taxi vouchers, that will uh, uh, provide food. Um, for the patient and her family throughout her, say, chemotherapy treatment. Uh, in Maryland, we even have an organization that will uh, send Mary Maids into the patient's home while she's receiving chemotherapy to make sure that she's in a really clean environment. So um, those conversations take place very early on with the patient so that we can identify what does she need and make sure that she gets it. Yeah, good. You know, good, that's good. really great. And, well, we you only know, have a couple minutes before our break. Oh, but, you're um, right. I, we do. Wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, I want to make sure that we can continue this because all of these barriers definitely can cause a, a woman to maybe not go to her chemo appointments when she needs to, or she may not do the radiation when she needs to, and these kinds of things. So I think those are really, really valid, important points. And so perhaps you can um, provide us maybe with the list that you have available so we can then share it with our listeners as well in the future. Yeah, that's a a good idea. We'd love to do that. So we're going to talk a little bit more about... um, your specialty, I guess, breast cancer survivorship. We're probably going to need to go into um, our break with that information. But just give give a definition um, of survivorship for us, and then we'll probably go off to break. Yes. So it is anyone who has been diagnosed with cancer, and of course in this case we're talking about breast cancer, and is alive. Um, oftentimes patients will say, well, when can I consider myself a survivor, I said, well, you know what, you look alive to me right now. I think that you should be uh, embracing that, uh, that name and considering yourself a survivor. And that includes patients who have stage 4 metastatic breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, they, they, too, are surviving with their disease, hopefully living in harmony with it and still uh, preserving their, their quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we all need hope, and we need, and part of that hope is to be able to maintain whatever lifestyle we've been, we've been accustomed to. There may be variations in it, but it's definitely something you know that we all need to be able to live for and be excited about. So absolutely. So it sounds like we're going to go out to break now because I just got the big smiley face from our from our producer. So we're we're going to come back and we'll pick up this subject. So um, in the meantime, we'd love to have callers call in. Our number is 866-472-5792. And we will be back in just a couple minutes. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? 
Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking with our special guest, Lily Shockney about a lot of different topics, but we're going to get right into um, the importance of self-monitoring right now, Lily. So tell us a little bit about how important that really is. So the, the person who should know the what I call the geography of a woman's breast the best is that woman herself. Uh, what we want her to be doing is examining her breasts every month at the same time of the month and comparing it to the prior month. Uh, once she's been doing it rather regularly, she'll know what the nooks and crannies and lumps and bumps are that are her normal, and then we'll be comparing that to something that she may find that is new, because that's what we're looking for, is that we're looking for a change. About 40% of women diagnosed today actually do find their own lump by checking their own breasts. 40%? So we do think that it is important to do those self-exams. Some women say, well, you know, I don't want to because I just don't know what I'm feeling for. If you learn that geography yourself and you owe that to yourself and to your family, then uh, you will know what you're feeling because, as I say, what we want you to be sensitive to is to figure out, do I have a change from uh, from last month? Um, There are some women that say, well, I just rely on my gynecologist. I see him once a year. Uh, I really don't think that gynecologist remembers what he felt a year ago on that individual woman when he's had thousands of patients come through there in the meantime. Right. So uh, it is something that, that, we, that we definitely need to do. And yeah. beginning at age 40, women should be getting mammograms annually. Um, today, something that is uh, available at virtually all breast centers um, is called tomosynthesis nicknamed TOMO, and it is a 3D mammogram. It's 28% more accurate than traditional digital 2D mammography. So uh, that has also greatly aided in in identifying breast cancer even earlier than what we have um, in in the past. And the sooner we can find it, then the sooner we can take care of it and hopefully save more lives as well as save more, more breasts. There are certainly women who get stage 4 disease. Some of these women have a tumor that is so tiny, 
It can barely be seen on a mammogram or in some cases not seen at all. Um, and I say that because uh, we've, we've uh, uh, done a, a survey nationally with consumers that took a look at uh, the opinions of consumers regarding women with stage 4 metastatic breast cancer and what do consumers think is the cause of it. The majority of consumers believe that it's because a woman didn't get a mammogram or didn't check herself. Um, mm-hmm. And when it comes to metastatic disease, that's usually not the situation. Um, that uh, it, this is a, a nasty, aggressive uh, situation, and um, she's she's had bad luck. Yeah, um, is what it is what it gets right down to. Lily, um, let me let me just people. share something. Yes. Can I uh-huh. can I just share something before we get too far off the self monitor? I don't want to get away from that without sharing this because I think this is important. You know, when I was first diagnosed, um, I had stage three breast cancer on the right. And then I was getting annual mammograms after that, and I had my mammogram in my second or my multiple ones, whatever, August of 2003, and everything was clean on both sides at that point because we'd already removed the cancer the first time. I was completely clean. Everything was good. And then 10 months later, so I was two months away from my next mammogram, Uh and I was in the shower, and I was doing a self-breast exam, and I felt this tumor on the other side that had finally gotten, it was really deep and had finally gotten big enough for me to feel it. I went in, had it checked. It was another stage three tumor that had grown from zero to stage three in 10 months. And, and so I say that because for women who think they're going in for a mammogram every year, they don't need to do that. Yeah, they do. I mean, two months later, who knows how big it would have been. It was very aggressive. And so we, we really do need to pay attention and if something is different we need to be that squeaky wheel that that gets our doctor's attention that's, so, that is correct yeah uh, so i just need wanted to rely to on our own instincts mm-hmm. uh, and 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 advocate for ourselves yeah exactly and mammograms are wonderful don't get me wrong but they don't always detect everything so again understanding your body and what's normal is so so important um i had uh, a, a lump I again felt just like Becky, but um, went in, had a uh, lumpectomy, did not have clean margins, and so I ended up with a mastectomy and come to find out there was a whole nother site that did not show up on a mammogram or couldn't be felt. So again, it is really, really important just to know your body, what normal is. And so I'm really glad that you're, I know they've kind of gotten away from talking about self-breast exams. So I'm really thrilled, Lily, that you're still advocating for that. Absolutely. And uh, women can now read on their mammogram reports and they all should should be receiving a copy of their mammogram reports from the radiologist. Um, there will be documented on there now because it's a federal law requiring it. What degree of density does your breast tissue have? Those with uh, severe density are commonly uh, advised to also get some other imaging done. Uh, sometimes that's ultrasound. Sometimes it's even breast MRI, depending on the, the severity of the density and whether or not the, uh, the woman has other known risk factors, such as first-degree relatives diagnosed, or if in the past she's had a biopsy that contained atypical duct hyperplasia or atypical lobular hyperplasia. So is that considered your care plan that you're talking about? Um, it actually is not. So what I was just referencing was a description of what 
would be found in a mammogram report measuring that density. But uh, the Commission on Cancer, which accredits cancer centers uh, across the country to, to be a cancer center and take care of cancer patients, has um, created some new standards. Uh, they were launched in 2012 and then were required to be in place uh, with all of the cancer centers being compliant in doing them. And one of those key ones um, is for as a patient has, is completing her cancer treatment, what we refer to as the acute treatment, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, she is to receive a treatment summary that describes all of the treatment that she has had, names of the drugs, the dosages, the frequency, how many labs she got if she had radiation uh, and such, and uh, also receive a survivorship care plan. This is a, a document that outlines for her when is she due to get her next uh, breast imaging studies done, when is she due to be seeing her gynecologist for a public exam? Is she also perhaps due, say, two years from now for a colonoscopy? Um, also promoting some lifestyle behavior changes if needed to reduce her risk of getting breast cancer again. We're getting another primary cancer of a different organ site, such as if she was a smoker, then you can be assured that smoking cessation will be on there and she'll be given not just literature, but actually a referral to get her into a smoking cessation program. They also include a nutrition referral uh, right. to get her on a healthier diet. Um, and uh, exercise uh, are, are very common things that would be seen on that document. I personally prefer to call it a survivorship life plan because I want to see those life goals that she told us about and are, is she still on track for them. And then... Are there some new life goals? As I mentioned, one woman said, yeah, I've got one, and it's a husbandectomy. Um, because <laughs> I wrote that really one down, her, too. <laughs> this is really her roadmap for her health going forward. And <clears throat> gynecologists and primary care physicians were not taught in medical school up until those that are in medical school today. Those that we are seeing that are, that are in their 50s and 60s did not have training in medical school about cancer survivorship. It was assumed that a cancer survivor would continue to see their oncology specialist for the rest of her life. Mm. Unfortunately, there is a shortage of oncologists. That shortage is going to be somewhere between 41 and 48% by 2020, which is not very far away. Because of that shortage and the dramatic increase in the number of people being diagnosed with cancer, and that's because baby boomers are now in midlife, they've swelled the denominator, which then in turn swells the numerator, we are not in a position anymore for oncology specialists to follow cancer survivors long term. Mm -hmm. So many of them, when they finish that acute treatment, they have to transition the patient back to her community physician. We need to empower her with information so that she knows what she needs to be advocating for herself. We need to make sure that she understands, make sure you do these tests, do not rely on someone to call you and remind you to be doing these. And um, we also want to make sure that she is recording her family history for cancers going forward. She may not have had a profile that raised any questions about possibly her carrying a breast cancer gene mutation, but let's say two or three years from now, one of her sisters gets diagnosed. Her mother gets diagnosed. Uh, right. Her mother's uh, uh, her mother's sister's daughter gets diagnosed. Now she's got a pedigree 
that's kind of shouting out, gee, you probably have a gene, and we want to make sure that the PCP uh, routes her back to the oncology team so that a genetics uh, consultation can be, can be done and such. Uh, we also want her to stay abreast, pun intended, on <laughs> what's going on in the field of breast cancer. So Johns Hopkins has a, uh, uh, I call it a newsletter, but it's actually a, a, a layman's medical journal that uh, is on our website. It's called Artemis. I publish it every month. Uh, 20 to 25 abstracts um, a month, whatever is the latest research that's been published in evidence-based uh, oncology journals, because that's a very effective way to keep everyone up to date uh, and to know if there are new things that they need to be asking about, such as my reference to uh, you should know what the density of your breasts are because it now has actually been measured by the mammogram and reported on your uh, on your mammogram report. Hey, Lily, I have a question. Is there a, a resource, an online resource that is a good place for people to go that don't, you know, where, where it's written in layman's terms where, so we can learn these things, maybe print things out? Is there so well, much of that like stuff this, that you find is really technical? Yeah, so, sure. So the American Cancer Society has a, a good summary of it, and they can use the little search feature on there typing in survivorship care plan. Um also on uh, on the Johns Hopkins Breast Center website, which is HopkinsBreastCenter.org, uh, they can click on survivorship, and we've outlined everything on there um, as well, which I think would be be very helpful. Uh, BreastCancer.org also has a survivorship section and has information outlined um, that I'm describing, as well as some samples of what these documents look like. Um, and if a uh, if someone has uh, is completing their treatment in the coming months, it's very appropriate for them to ask now, when will I be getting my transitional consultation appointment so that I will be presented with my treatment summary and my survivorship uh, care plan? Um, as I say, this is a requirement of the Commission on Cancer, and I, I, think, it's, uh, I, I think it's a smart idea uh, so that uh, patients do know what the treatments are that they've had and you know, set them on a pathway of wellness. Uh, going forward um, and, and really help them in making that transition. Uh, they've, they've been involved with treatment usually 9 to 12 months, maybe even 18 months, and when that acute treatment ends, oftentimes when they feel like they fell off of a cliff, yes, um, they rather do. than <laughs> celebrating, they, uh, they're afraid they'll, be, they'll jinx themselves if they celebrate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Every ache and pain, they're frightened is the cancer coming back, and one of the other uh, things that's in this uh, survivorship care plan is that it also states that routine scans won't be done. Um, it actually has been scientifically proven that it is not helpful to keep doing CAT scans and bone scans and PET CTs, et cetera, uh, for uh, women with stage zero to three uh, breast cancer who have completed their treatment. We are better to rely on physical symptoms. So if someone has a a new ache or pain that is consistently there. They don't know the cause. We don't like they picked up furniture and moved it, and that's why their back hurts. Um, and it has been lingering now for, for three weeks or more. That means we, might, we need to get her back to her medical oncologist to find out is there something brewing somewhere else. Does she have distant recurrence? 
Okay. You know, I, yeah. I, when I talk to my doctor, because it, you're right, I mean, there's there's two different schools of thought, it seems, from the doctors. Some do scan annually, and then some don't, and mine was one who didn't. And I, I asked him one day, I said, so why don't you scan me on a regular basis? And he, he said there's two reasons. One, because you do get a lot of false positives that turn out to be mm-hmm. nothing, and there's a lot of stress. He said, but the worst case scenario is we scan you, nothing shows up, but something is wrong, you can feel it, but you think, well, I just got scanned, so there's no problem. Scans don't always right. pick up everything. He says, so if something's wrong, you'll tell me. And he says that if I mm-hmm. don't scan you first, you'll be paying more attention to your body. And that's mm-hmm. really kind of how we found my third battle because I'd had a double mastectomy, and I thought I was done. I didn't want to play this game anymore. And then yeah. lo and behold, we find out because I'd felt this shooting pain going up through my neck that turned out to be nothing but it got me in, and we found that my cancer had spread behind my breastbone near my chest wall. And it was, mm-hmm. excuse me, labeled as consistent with metastatic disease. And mm-hmm. had I not gone in and told him that, I, and he had just maybe done a scan before that, and it turned out negative, I wouldn't have worried about it. You know, I just right. would have thought it was old age or something, you know. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh, but he, uh-huh. he paid attention, and voila, we find out that I've got potentially metastatic breast cancer. You know, uh-huh. and just to finish that quick story, it's gone. There's, we've, we had a bunch of radiation, and there's no evidence of disease in my body at this time. So I'm very happy, happy about that. You and are, we hope it you stays are, out. You need a T-shirt that says, Got Ned, for no evidence <laughs> of disease. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when, when we're talking about our cancer going to some other place, um, there's lots of different terms that we use. Um, some people call it, you know, a, a distant recurrence. Um, what, what does that actually mean? So what it means is it is classified as stage four breast cancer. It does mean that the breast cancer has traveled beyond the breast and beyond the lymph nodes under the arm, and it's gone to other organ sites uh, commonly for breast cancer, it, it likes to go to the bone, the liver, the lungs, sometimes the brain. Uh, 15% of breast cancers are invasive lobular. They take a different pathway, interestingly enough. Um, they like to go to um, the, the, the GI tract, uh, to the uterus, um, uh, even, uh, even to the pancreas. Um, so they, that it's, it's just a different cell and it likes to take a different direction. And though we will say to a patient, you have distant recurrence. Really, what has happened is that there were tiny, tiny, tiny bad rogue cells from that breast cancer that left the breast, went through the lymphatic system. Maybe it didn't even stop in the lymphatic system. Lymph cells could have been negative and went and found its way, let's say, into the hip bone. And mm-hmm. it was quiet. It sat there even if we had done scans, we would not have seen it because it was only a few cells. And then sometime in the future, they come out of their dormancy and something wakes them up. What we're trying to figure out is what wakes them up because if they would remain hibernating, no one would ever get stage 4 breast cancer and die. Mm. So, um, so even though we say you have recurrence, it doesn't really mean that um, suddenly breast cancer has popped up in your hip or your lung or somewhere, it was there all along but was too tiny to be Mm -hmm. able to identify. And now we need to treat the breast cancer quite differently than what we did 
during the time that it was stage zero to three, where we were throwing the kitchen sink at it in some cases, uh, now we're, now we need to balance treatment and their side effects with also maintain, maintaining quality of life. Because exactly. one of the things that we don't want to do is to have a patient be really, really sick and not enjoying what is left of their life. For women with estrogen receptor positive tumors, um, and it does require a biopsy of one of the organ sites where the cancer is spread to confirm it still is estrogen receptor positive, about 22% of tumors, when they do leave the breast and go on to other organs, will become the opposite receptors, estrogen, progesterone, and or HER2 receptors than what they originally were. Wow. Um, but but whatever, that we can, uh, whatever that we can do to... Uh, to have her uh, live in harmony with this disease. So estrogen receptor positive tumors uh, that are metastatic, commonly we can get the, that disease in control, treating it as a chronic illness by giving her a pill, giving her hormonal therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen women that are 8 years, 10 years, 15, even 20 years out from their diagnosis of stage 4 and still doing well on hormonal therapy. Um, the, the really tough situations are those where the tumor is triple negative and it has, uh, it, and it is stage four. Then we're very limited with the treatments because we have chemotherapy, um, though we do have quite a few drugs and, and even some newer drugs in the last couple of years. We don't have anywhere near the, the, um, uh, the, the opportunity to have lots of different, uh, treatment options. And so when chemotherapy is given and it's not working, then we move on to the next chemotherapy agent. And all of those have side effects, so it's uh, it's not going to be a, a walk in the park, that's for sure. Yeah, Lily, and that's we why have quality to... of life is so important, so yeah. It is. And Lily, we have to go out on break, um, so we're going to come back here in just a, a couple minutes. So if you have any questions for Lily Shockney, give us a call at 866-472-5792, and we'll be back in a minute. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. Wow, we have so much great information from Lily. Thank you very much for being on our show, Lily. I want to shift gears just a little bit because... You know, there's a tough subject here. When when cancer does become metastatic, um, 
I know you've got a great video out there, and I, I just want to talk about some of the emotional stuff and then a little bit about your video as well. Sure. So it is a it, it is a tough road to have to be hoeing, and it's it's a road that we would really prefer no one to have to travel down. Um, uh, however, women are still going to be diagnosed with uh, metastatic breast cancer, advanced breast cancer that has spread onto other organs. We know from experience that today it is incredibly difficult to get all of it gone. So we do not consider it curable, but we do consider it uh, treatable. Um, and we do treat it like it is a chronic illness, just like we would diabetes or heart disease or COPD. Um, so a patient is more than likely going to be constantly receiving some form of treatment. There are times in which uh, hopefully she can go on what we call a drug holiday where she can take a break from treatment and really feel better and go on vacation and do things with her family and her friends. Um, the disease may enlarge during that time, but it's expected. And then when she returns from that break, then get her back on to, to treatment again. Everyone who loves her is impacted by this diagnosis. No one is really spared. Um, I've been conducting retreats for patients with stage 4 breast cancer now for a decade. I hold two of them a year. One is for couples, so the patient brings her spouse or significant sweetie or partner. Uh, the other is for women not in a relationship, and they bring a female caregiver, which could be their mother, their sister, their daughter, or their best friend. They are free to attend, and they are not limited to Johns Hopkins patients. We have patients that travel from across the country uh, for this three-day, two-night uh, program. We hold it at uh, Bonsapur Spiritual Center. It's a 362 acres of serenity. Um, everyone has private rooms and private baths, and we accommodate special diets and such. And over those three days, uh, a lot of networking happens. People are very anxious to find others who are in the same situation as themselves. Spouses are desperate to talk to other husbands. Um, they've been uh, trying to be stoic and uh, cry in private, and they welcome the opportunity to talk with other uh, with with other men um, uh, about how they're feeling and what their situation is. No one likes to talk about death, um, and that makes perfect sense, of course. But I do get into that discussion um, because it's it, it needs to get out there on the table. I want to make sure that people have their affairs in order, legally and financially. I also uh, want to know what are the goals that this woman has that she probably will not live long enough to reach. So I'll give you an example of um, one particular patient. Uh, I took care of her uh, 16 years ago, and at that time, that is when she died. <clears throat> and um, her daughter was 10 years old at that time. Mm. <clears throat> I received a phone call two years ago, two summers ago, from that daughter. I'd never met that child. And she said... Uh, you took care of my mom when I was only 10, and that's when my mother died. She said, uh, my, uh, my mother was in and out of the hospital a lot, and <clears throat> when she would come home, I, my Aunt Sarah would be there taking care of her at home, and I would hear her 
uh, say to Aunt Sarah, Lily said to do this and Lily said to do that, but I didn't know who Lily was or what you were telling my mom until she did die. Then my Aunt Sarah became the keeper of my cards. And what we do is that we provide to patients uh, cards to select from, cards for birthdays for their children up through age 21, driver's license, uh, when they go to communion, when they have their bar mitzvah, when they graduate from high school, college, when they get married, when they have their first child. What do you want to tell your child on that day? And for this woman, she said that every milestone in her life, she felt her mother's presence. She saw her mother's handwriting, read her words of wisdom and her love for her. And she said, three weeks ago, I got married. And she said, when my Aunt Sarah put my veil on my head, she handed me a card from my mother. And she oh, said, the edging, the edging of the envelope had yellowed because it was 14 years old. She said, I opened it, and it was a beautiful card. She said, on the, uh, in the inside, left-hand side, is where her mother had written. And she wrote, I know you would have chosen wisely who was deserving of having you spend the rest of your life with. In the middle, she wrote, marital advice, don't ever go to bed angry with one another, whatever it is can be talked through. And at the bottom, she wrote, when your dad lifts your veil and kisses your left cheek, you will feel me kiss your right. And oh, my said, gosh. Lily, I have tracked you down, and I'm so glad you were still at Hopkins. She said, because I swear I felt my mother's kiss. I have always felt my mother's presence through these cards. And she said... I don't know, though, if there's any more cards for me. And I said, are you planning to have a family? And she said, in a year to 18 months, we do hope to start a family. I said, when you learn you're expecting, there will be a card from your mother describing how she felt when she learned she was carrying you. When the baby is born, there will be a letter from your mother describing how she felt when she first held you and all of the hopes and love that she had for you. And I said, and when your first child is a toddler... There was a cassette tape that your mother recorded, nursery oh. rhymes and children's story. <laughs> but this, oh my uh, gosh, what a so, gift! So this, uh, so this gal who's 24 years old says to me, "What's a cassette?" <laughs> so I'm really, <laughs> I thought I'm going to send people to yeah. a uh, to a uh, to an antique store to get a cassette tape player. Now we now we <laughs> get so them from Hallmark, the recordable yeah. books, and that yeah. works very well. It but does. Um, it's. Uh, you know, I, I I got weary of telling patients, I'm so sorry you won't be here for this and that, and thought there's got to be another way to fulfill these hopes. It's brilliant. Um, and that's proven to be a very effective yeah. way uh, to do it. Well, you are you are a treasure. You are a treasure, Lily. And, and I wanted to kind of, and I don't know if you if you really want to talk about this, but I'm just going to ask you, we mentioned the video. When you and I were both yes. in Sandusky, I think it's, it was, uh, was connected to the Cleveland Clinic event there. Um, you and I shared a stage there. And I went and listened to your presentation on, you were talking about the retreats and a video that you had created. And you told a story about a ship, you know, leaving one shore and arriving yes. at the other. I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to share that. Story. Okay. We don't have a I, lot of time, I, so uh, <laughs> kind of the short so, version of it. Yes. So one of our closing ceremonies um, is to have a, a patient create a memory ship where she selects objects, um, seashells, uh, sea glass, pebbles, rocks from the beach, and each of those is to represent a happy memory for her, and she's given a journal so that she can log it in, and um, her family will still have that memory ship after she is gone, and, and when they're sad or they need to connect with her, they can take out one of those objects out of this beautiful vase that's in the shape of a hurricane lamp with a 
ship's uh, helm wheel on it, uh, and, they're, and they can feel the connection because there she wrote in her journal what that happy memory represented. And as they're doing that, uh, I tell them that they're each going to receive on parchment paper a verse called The Ship written by Henry Van Dyke, and I always paraphrase it for them. And it's a family who's here on this uh, shore standing at a dock, and they're looking at this huge, magnificent white ship that's uh, getting its cargo loaded on. Pretty soon the cargo is all loaded, the sails go up, the wind snaps, the sails open, and this beautiful boat is now setting out of port and going out into the ocean. And they admire her even more for her size and her grace. And they watch her as she goes out to the horizon, and she's getting smaller and smaller and smaller until then someone says, she's gone, but gone where? She's only gone from our sight. She is just as large in Maston Hall as she was when she was at our side and just as able to carry her living freight to her new and final destination. Her size is diminished in us, but not in her. And as we stand here as family and friends at this dock and say, she's gone, there's family and friends on the other shore sending up the glad shout, look, here she comes. It's a very effective way to look at death in a more peaceful manner. I have husbands that call me and say, we learned today her sails are up or she's reaching the horizon line. And then they'll call me and they'll let me know when she has passed and they'll tell me the time that she arrived to the other shore and who they believe was there to greet her. So it also has served as an analogy to make it more comfortable to also talk about death. Wow. Lily, well, this is the first time I've cried. Yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry. I don't usually oh, cry dear. on our show, but this is this is the first time I've cried on the show and the second time I've cried at that story. It's yeah. so, it's so, so beautiful, beautiful and so powerful and just unbelievable. Um, wow. Yeah, death okay. is a tough topic, obviously, to talk about. And I know um, with our work at Breast Friends, we, we do try to address some of those things, the fear of that happening and... And, uh, uh, and just try to be that safe place where they can, they can talk about that topic. And, but I love, I love your analogy and I hope I can, I can pass that on to some of my patients as well, because that's, that's a pretty powerful way of looking at death because you're right. The person hasn't diminished at all. It's just that they have diminished from our view, our sight. And, um, that's that's really a powerful way of looking at it. Well, we only have three minutes before the end of the show, so I just wanted to make sure, um, Lily, that if there were any parting remarks, um, you could certainly um, mention a little bit about that. Are you speaking anywhere that we can hear you again soon? Or um, Actually, my next speaking engagement is in China in two weeks. Oh, wow. So wow. That might be a little too far to be traveling for that, that's for <laughs> sure. so, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so but, um, uh, Lily, let, let me um, ask you a quick question because we're, we're, yeah. we're getting another signal here. Um, if people wanted to sign up for your couples retreat for metastatic couples, how would they go about doing that? Because that's yeah. not something we offer, but your, sure. your event sounds um, fabulous. So they can email me directly, which is s-h-o-c-k-l-i at j-h-m-i dot e-d-u. They can also go to hopkinsbreastcenter.org, click on Ask an Expert, and then click on Metastatic Retreats. 
okay. um, and, and sign up that way um, as well. Uh, I, um, uh, I, I do encourage uh, patients to sign up early um, because we do take a, a limited number of individuals, usually 12 couples. Okay. Um, that way it's not a seminar, if you know what I mean, that it really mm-hmm. is individual attention. Okay. Uh, and we have fun, too. We do a uh, almost newlywed game, where, uh, is, which is pretty hysterical. Um, <laughs> so we, 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 we have fun time together as well, which is good for everybody to, to laugh, keep our T-cells pumping. Good. And if someone wants mm-hmm. to book you as a speaker or if they want to buy a copy of your book, how do they do that? And we literally have about 30 seconds. So Yeah. So I've, I've written 14 books. They're all on Amazon.com. And uh, if, if someone uh, is looking for a speaker, the uh, best way to do it is to email me okay. um, at, at that address that I okay. gave. Yes. Or they could uh-huh. go to Amazon and search for Lily Shockney books, and that would take yep. care of it. Well, we uh, are we are out of time. Up. Lily, you've been amazing. We really need to get you back because there's so much more to talk about. But remember until – we'll be back next week, but until then, remember that there is always hope, and we're here to help you find it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. There is always hope, and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.